We've been exploring of what does it mean to live in freedom? What does it mean to be a people that are, is free? And, you know, throughout this journey, we've been talking about how our notion of freedom in the modern day, it's, it's a little bit different than what the Bible describes freedom to be. We've looked at how sometimes we think that freedom is the total and utter absence of rules. But then we also acknowledge that if there was no rules, then life would be chaos, chaos. It would be total and utter madness. And so we need structure. We need the right guidelines. And we see that God provided that through the law, through the Ten Commandments. And Commandments 1 through 4, they teach us how to love. And Commandments 5 through 10 teach us how to love one another. And this is the pathway towards freedom because Israel, they have been slaves for hundreds of years. They don't know what it means to be free. So God quite literally has to show them what freedom really looks like. And here in this text, and what we're going to explore today, we're going to try to get right at the center of it, right at the pinnacle of where this freedom is found and what does it mean to be free. I think in many ways, what it means to be free is to live wholeheartedly. Can we say wholeheartedly? To live courageously, to be bold, to be bold in the way that we live. But I think sometimes in our life, what it means to be bold, what it means to be courageous is to have a hard exterior shell. You ever know someone like that? Like they really just put on this tough image, but on the inside, they're just like a gummy bear. It's like super soft. I know a few people like that in my life. In fact, uh, one of the people here, uh, she has an older brother, and he puts on this really tough exterior, super tough. Like if you met him, you'd be super intimidated. And then you kind of talk to him, and you realize he's just a teddy bear. He's just a big old teddy bear. But I think sometimes we put on that, that tough front in life because we think that's what it means to be courageous. That's what it means to be bold. That's how we have to live in order to protect ourselves. But we see is that the reality of wholehearted living, the reality of courageous living, it requires vulnerability. Can we say vulnerability? Exposed to risk in order to be brave. And that's what it takes to live a wholehearted life. Engaging from a place, not of worthlessness, but of worthiness. No, and it's essentially saying no matter what gets done and no matter what doesn't get done, I know that I am enough. I know that I am loved. And that gives you the courage and the freedom to face this life. Now, February is a tough month for many people. It's the shortest of months, but it's also the saddest of months. Anyone sad in February? Okay, like three people. All right. And I always find that, especially like during school, like when I was in middle school and high school, I hated February. I hated February because January is exciting. New year and like new resolutions and new chances. And then February hits around and I've already failed all of my resolutions. And then Valentine's Day goes around. And I don't know if they still do this in y'all school, but like we would, like people would send each other heart telegrams. Do you guys do that? Huh? Candy grams. Yeah, and I'd only get one from like my one goofy friend. And he just writes something like, you're ugly. 
and then send it to me. And then it'd be so sad. And I always feel like in February too, like it's like the teachers would conspire against us because they knew that we were already sad. So they would like set like five or six tests in a row and they would send all these assignments and essays just all in a row. And I don't know if you've had a week like that. And I don't know if you've had a week where you've had like five or six projects due and it's Friday and you've accomplished none of them. You know, when I'm in that place, I feel worthless. I feel useless. I feel like my present is destroyed and my future is absolutely destroyed. That's a place of worthlessness. But what we see with true freedom is whether everything gets done or everything doesn't get done, it's this understanding that, yes, I am imperfect, but I am still loved, known, and I belong to something. But the reality is this type of freedom, this type of experience is really difficult. It's really difficult to experience that type of life. You know, in our modern culture, we're told that, you know what, if you want to be truly free, you just don't care about what anyone says and just love yourself. Quit worrying about what everyone else says and just love yourself. And I don't know if you guys have tried this, but this is incredibly difficult to love yourself. There's plenty of times in my own life, and I'm sure you've experienced yourself, where you just don't feel all that lovable. And the question starts to come up in our lives at one point or another. The question of, do I matter? Do I belong? Does anyone notice? And does anybody truly care? You know, when we look at the Israelites and their journey throughout the wilderness, the golden calf incident, all the grumbling, all the complaining, all of their fear, all of their worry, these things that we have been exploring together, it comes from a place of separation. It comes from a place of separation from God and not trusting his love for them. It's the questions that you and I tend to ask ourselves, where are you, God? Why are you doing this? Or what is going on? And what we see is that this alienation, this separation is a consequence of sin. And so what God is doing in the wilderness for the Israelites is he's reforming their heart. He's molding it and reshaping it so it becomes more and more secure, more and more like him. And that's what it means for us to understand freedom. It's living so that we don't live as slaves, but we live as those people who are truly free. And true freedom comes when we are fully known and we are fully loved. And in that place, you can be fully human. And that's what God is going after with these Israelites. And in this last part of our series, what we see that it gets to the heart of where this freedom is found. It's not only in a place of being known and loved, but it's where shame, worry, anxiety melt away. And that question that we ask ourselves from time to time of, do I matter? Am I worthy? Am I cared? It gets answered here when we see the presence of God and his people. And this is what Moses is talking to God about in this passage. He's saying, I don't care about anything else. What I need and what your people need the most is your presence and your glory. And so that's what we're gonna to explore together. Sound good? Nice. So Moses in the middle is in the middle of interceding. What does it mean to intercede? It's like if you're the older brother and your younger brother gets in trouble and you try to intercede on their behalf so that their parents don't hit them too hard. Any older siblings do that in here? No mercy. No, none of you? I mean, I think I did it at least like once for my younger brother. Okay, whatever, different generation. 
But he's interceding. He's interceding on behalf of the Israelites. Why? Because what we looked at last week, Israel, they built an idol in the form of a golden calf. And God's like, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, Moses, while you and I were having this awesome moment where I was giving you the law and the outline of the temple, the people down there, the people have been making this idol. He says, I want nothing to do with you guys. God responds and he says to Moses, leave this place, you and the people that I have brought out of the land of Egypt. And you know what, Moses? I'm going to send an angel with you. And the angel is going to go to the promised land and he's going to take care of all of your enemies. It's going to drive out the people. But you know what? I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. You are a stiff-necked people. And because of your rebellion, I might even destroy you on the way to the promised land. Why? Because Israel has broken their marital vows, the covenant with God. They've made a false God. They've made an idol. And so God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'll give you what you want, but you, you won't have me. I'll give you the stuff, but you don't get me. And this is a really interesting situation because I think some of us hear that and say, dude, that's awesome. We want all of the benefits that God can give us without the relational responsibilities. That's like if your dad, like after service, found you and said, here's my credit card. Some of you are like, what? Is this possible? He gave you a credit card and say, do whatever you want. Whatever you want with this card, no consequences. And we hear that like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I would get the new iPad Pro 279s or whatever, and I'd get a new car, and I'd get all of this stuff. But what if your dad said, I'll give you my credit card, but you can't have me. But you can't have me. What if God presented this situation to you? And said, anything you could hope to have, anything you could want, I'll give it to you. You want to be number one in your school? Number one. You want all the money in the world? Just fine. You want to be the all-state violin champion? (laughs) Go for it. You want to be an Instagram star? Done. You want to make the greatest, most popular TikTok of all time? Done. I will set you up to be the best of the best, but you know what? You won't get me. You You won't have me. What would we say to such an offer? And no matter who you are and whatever thing draws your attention, no matter who you are, you would think about wanting to have these things because all of these things, we feel as though if we have them, they will make us more worthy, more important, more significant and more cared about and more cared for. These are the things that make us feel as though we are valuable. They help us feel loved, approved, and accepted. If I just have this, if this just works out, then I will be good. Here's God saying, you'll get the land, the land flowing with milk and honey and the power to set it all up. But what does Moses say? He refuses the offer. He says, no. He says, don't do that. Because he understands that there's no true value there. Because the land and all of that stuff, it can't set Israel free. Moses intercedes not for the stuff that God provides, but he intercedes for God's presence, for him to be in a relationship with Israel. He says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't 
send us because everything is empty and vain unless we have you because all of those things don't matter if we don't have you because we're still slaves then. Don't you imagine for a moment being an orphan, just an orphan out on the street and just visualize that for a moment and then put yourself in the shoes of that orphan. What's the problem with being an orphan? An orphan doesn't have a special love. Can we say special love? The orphan doesn't have a special love of anyone. So what's their heart like? Could you imagine if you didn't have anyone's special kind of love? You'd be fearful, distrusting, guarded, scared, unsure of yourself, unsure of who you are. And if you were an orphan, no one would know you by your name. There would be no sense of belonging and you would always feel as though you are being judged and eventually you would start to feel that you are unworthy of a special kind of love. But imagine you're an orphan just roaming the streets of Suwani and someone comes along and drops off a huge bag of toys and says, here you go. Here's a Wii U and I don't know, some Nikes. They give you tons and tons of stuff, tons and tons of money, and says, you know what? I'm even going to buy you an apartment so you, little orphan, can live in that apartment. But that's it. I'm just going to give you the stuff. Would anything really change about this orphan's life? Sure, physically there'd be changes. There'd be toys, there'd be stuff, there'd be an apartment. But they would still be missing this special love. What would make an orphan feel more loved? Toys or someone to look at them and say, I know you. You are special to me. What is a better gift? What does the person really need? And likewise, that's the same with us. Sometimes we look at the stuff and say, that's what I really need. But is it? Does it strike at the heart of what your heart truly desires and what it really needs? Because at the end of the day, the toys and the stuff, they don't matter because none of it makes sense. None of it can make us matter without God. It's his presence. That's what is needed the most. And what this frees us to know is that we see that Moses is interceding for just that, his presence. He's saying, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? He's saying, God, you and you alone makes me distinct. You and you alone make us unique because we have a relationship with you. You know, right now I have black hair, but there was a time where I had red hair. I know, crazy, right? Back when I was 18, 13 years ago. And I, my mom, she's very conservative, um, like super, like traditional Korean mom. And so she would never let me dye my hair. And so I went to college. You know what the first thing I did was? I dyed my hair. Not brown, not something low-key but red. And when I mean red, I mean like, there's nothing in this room that, two ones, hoodie, red, red. You know why I did that? Because I wanted to be set apart. I wanted to be distinct. I want, you know what? In the, on this campus with all of these Asians, I want to be the one with super, super red hair. I want to be that special one, the one that is set apart from everybody else. And I think we do things like that, right? Like none of y'all dress the exact same way. We all like to wear different things, different looks, uh, different makeup, different styles, trying to be distinct, 
But look here at what Moses is saying. He's saying the only distinction that truly matters is that we have a relationship with you. He's saying, God, you have adopted us while we were orphans. We need that relationship. And in verse 17, God says, you're right. I will do the thing that you asked. And he says, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And that's the critical part. That's the center point of the intercession. I know you by name. You are not overlooked. You are not a face in the crowd. You are not an orphan. You are indeed my special possession and my special people. But guess what? If I'm going to have a special relationship with you, then that also means that I and I alone am the only thing that distinguishes you. I and I alone make you matter. Not your status, not your skills, but only my favor and only my love. Only I make you worthy. It's like a father going to an orphan and saying, I am taking you with me. I am the father that you have desperately been looking for, but only I can be your father. You know, people ask me if Hezi has spoken yet. Has he said a word? And he has. His first word was appa. Yeah, people say all, but the reality is he has no idea what that word means. He'll look at everything and anything and say, appa, appa, appa. He'll look at my wife, appa. <laughs> He'll look at Daniel, appa. He'll look at lights, appa. He'll look at my dog, appa. Everything is appa to him. It means nothing. And so sometimes I just want to sit Hezzy down and say, listen, son, if you want a meaningful relationship with me, only I can be your father. You can't go to everything else and say, Appa, 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 me and me alone, right? You can't go around having 50 other dads. It can only be me. Only I can be your father. I think likewise, this is what's happening here. I think we're in a situation where, are you my dad? Can you be my dad? Can you make me feel loved? Can you make me feel worthy? Can you make me feel valued? Can I know that in you, 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 you? And here's God saying, only me and me alone. Only I can be your heavenly father. Only I can be this one. And that's how it must be if you and I are to have special, intimate, and transforming relationship. And I think when we hear that, it either terrifies us or it thrills us. And if you and I are clinging on to the glory and value of lesser things, hoping that they will give us value and worthiness, then that statement of exclusivity that God is offering will scare you. Because I think there's a lot of times where we don't want God's love to be the only thing that distinguishes us. We want all the stuff and for God to just be the cherry on top I want what you can give me, God, but not the relationship that you're offering. So you take the first offer and reject the second. And if you want to distinguish yourself, then you'll take the deal that God originally offered, the promised land, but not me. Because what does that say? When we reject God as the only distinguishing marker for us and who we are, it's us saying, I can redeem myself and I can save myself, that your glory won't fade and that the things that you have, that they will save you. But the reality is the things that you have, the status that we chase, the numbers that we go after, they don't save us. They just look to enslave us, and that's it. 
you know, as you guys know, I love cars. And I wish, I wish I didn't. I wish I liked, like, marbles. Because they're cheap and affordable. But cars are expensive. And I love cars so much. I love things that go fast. And if you want to talk about cars, I'll talk about cars for hours. We went to a conference, um, a leadership conference with a group of people. And I think, the, I think I talked about cars for like two hours, just easily. But you know what? Because I love cars so much, I'm so unsatisfied with my Honda HRV. I hate it. I hate it with my whole heart. And because I love, I'm so obsessed with cars, every time I see a nicer car, my heart, it's filled with envy. It's, it's filled with corruption. <laughs> it's filled with, it's, my heart starts to think things like, how come he gets to drive that? Why not me? How come he gets that and not me? So you see what I'm saying here? That is not freedom, but it's enslavement. It's the only thing that I can think about. But if you truly see yourself as you are, as an orphan, as a slave, then God's saying, hey, I and me alone, I am your one and only. Those words aren't terrifying. They're sweet for him to call you by your name and say, I know you and I love you and you matter. That is unfading, unblemished value in knowing that you are indeed loved by God. And it can be only found in his presence, his intimate presence and the personal relationship that he offers. You know, a lot of people like to say in this pursuit of freedom and just kind of living your life, I don't care about what other people think. Have you ever said that? I don't care. You know, the funny thing is, the people who say that, and I've said that before, are tend to be the people who care the most about what other people think. Because we say that, but it still affects us. But there's a sociologist, she says that you're foolish to say that you don't care about what other people think, because you do. The key is to be specific about whose opinion really matters in your life and the people who make that list. Are the people, those people on that list must be people who truly know you and truly love you. And it is from that place where you find strength, where you find courage to face this life. Now imagine this. Imagine if the person whose opinion really mattered to you was God. A God who knows everything about you. A God that knows everything that you have done. And he looks at you and says, I love you. And you are indeed mine. Such a thing would be absolutely liberating. That in his presence, if we're perfectly known and perfectly loved, that is freedom. But there's a problem. Because just like Israel, our slave mindset, it comes creeping back in. Like what makes us deserving of such a love? Do we actually deserve that? We'll doubt it. And the answer is, yeah, no, we actually don't deserve that. And that's very clear when we are tracking with the Israelites because they're always turning away and we're in the same boat. So what do we do? Well, when we look at this text, Israel doesn't go to God and plead. It's Moses, their representative, their advocate. Moses, when he intercedes, he doesn't do it based on Israel's worthiness. He doesn't go to God and say, hey, God, these Israelites, they're not that bad. They're, they're okay. They have some good parts to them too. No, he intercedes. He appeals based on God's character of mercy and of grace. And this and this alone. 
He doesn't say Israel has any merit. He just says, but you, God, you and your character. And God says, okay, I will go with you. Moses essentially has nothing to negotiate with other than the fact that he is known by God and God alone. You know, some of the boys, they like to play basketball. Um, and, and some of the boys that have graduated youth ministry, um, they'll like ask me like on a Thursday or Friday um, whether they can play basketball or not. And these boys, they're clever because they've been with me for a few years and they know what I like to say yes to and they know what I like to say no to. And they're so clever, they've chosen a representative. They don't all come asking, they choose one. And I think they choose this one because they know I have a soft spot for him and I have a hard time saying no to him. And when he comes and says, Pastor Stephen, can we play basketball this Friday? My heart, it wants to say no. <laughs> it wants to say, no, the church is closed. Because the reality is he and that whole group, they have no negotiating power. They have nothing to offer me. There's no merit of their own. There's nothing. They're like, well, if they send you Pastor Stephen, I'll buy you a burrito. If we can come, maybe. But it's the only reason why I say yes. The only reason is because I, I know them. And they know me. And what they're calling upon is my character. And just like that, Moses is calling upon God's character. But Moses takes it a step further. And he says, God, I want you to show me your glory. Moses has already gotten God to say, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses takes it a step further. It's like, dude, quit while you're ahead. But he makes this request. He says, God, show me. Prove, prove to me that you are with us. Prove that, you, that we are your special possession. And God says, Moses, if I give you that, if I show you my glory, you're going to die. Because no one can look at my face and live. But God still makes a way. He gives him a veiled glimpse of his glory. He puts him in the cleft of a rock. And as his presence goes by, his own hand covers Moses. So he gets an outline. He gets a shadow. He says, if I came in my fullness, you would be obliterated. But why does God do this? Why does God give Moses a glimpse of his glory? As we've talked about through this series, as great as Moses is as an advocate and intercessor for Israel, he isn't enough. He's not adequate enough to be the true mediator for Israel. He's lacking in his own right. He has his own flaws. He can't be in the fullness of God's presence, but God graciously comes and creates a way for Moses to intercede and for his presence to go with Israel. And when we see the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, God's glory comes down in his fullness. But why? It's because Moses is just a shadow of the one who truly intercedes on behalf of God's people. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all the universe by the word of his power. We see that Jesus is the radiance, the fullness of God's glory. And his glory, his presence, the thing that represents being in a special relationship, it came down and Jesus achieved what Moses could not. That he literally came and because of him, 
we can have this actual in, real intimate relationship with the Father. And on the cross, Jesus truly intercedes in a way that Moses could not by taking the full payment of sin. Because Jesus was not shielded by the fullness of God's wrath. There was no rock. There was no hand to cover him. He just took it full force. And the presence of God was taken away from him so that he would feel the full extent of what it means to be an orphan. Why? So that you and I could know what it means to be loved, to be known, to be God's special possession. You know, in a world that's begging for your attention, in a world that's saying, be worthy because of this, be valued because of this, the reality of that is all those things are just lesser gods. They're just idols. They're not there to give you life, but they're there to take it away. But here's Jesus saying, this is what it means to be loved. To know that your value is not your own. Your value is not your status. But your value and your worthiness comes from the fact that you are known by the Father. And you are loved by the Father. And that is true freedom. Amen.